Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Today, I'm interviewing Rochelle Dixon. Rochelle is the president and co-founder of the HSAN1E Society. HSAN1E stands for Hereditary Sensory Autonomic Neuropathy Type 1E, which is a rare hereditary degenerative neurological disease. It is caused by a mutation in a single gene and runs in Rochelle's family. Many of Rochelle's family members have lived with and died from HSAN1E, including Rochelle's brother and sister. She was the caretaker for both of them. She speaks often on caretaking for individuals with rare diseases. Hi, Rochelle. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Just to kind of orient people, so HSAN1E is an ultra-rare disease. Um, can you just tell people what what is it? It's a very confusing kind of acronym. It's a mouthful. So HSAN1E, Hereditary Sensory Autonomic Neuropathy Type 1E, is a um, adult-onset rare disease. Typically, a person that has HSAN1E will start to show symptoms in their 30s. And the three main symptoms are hearing loss, peripheral neuropathy, and cognitive decline, or easier to say, you know, to say is dementia. Um, all these symptoms are progressive, and the disease usually runs a 15-year course. So um, typically, patients will pass away in their early 50s. It, is, it Again, it is fatal, and there are no treatments, and there are no cures for it to date. So when you initially reached out to me about being on the podcast, I found it really interesting that you put your family story in the context of the diagnostic odyssey that a lot of people with rare disease go through. Um, so I think you gave an average of the, the amount of time that it usually takes people to find a diagnosis. What was that average? Um, it's about 7.6 years. Okay. And, and in your case, four generations in 65 years. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit longer than average. <laughs> yeah, I, I, a, little, a little bit. Yeah. Before you actually, your family received a genetic diagnosis, um, it was already being referred to as the family disease because it was clear that there was something going on in the family. Um, when did you learn that there was a disease running in the family? I'm curious if this is something that you picked up on as a child or something that your parents talked about with you openly or just what your experience was like with that from even from a young age. So basically, it was just something I always knew. I don't have a particular day or an aha moment. It's, it's just I grew up with it, and that's just what I knew. I knew at a very young age that my grandfather had passed away from some family disease. I never knew him, but, you know, when you, you're asked, hey, how come I don't have a grandpa? I mean, that was kind of the story that I was told. He was sick, he has this family disease, and he died. Um, 
so I have, I always knew there was a quote unquote family disease. I obviously didn't know about all that it entailed until pretty much until it got to, um, my mom. And what, and your mom started getting sick when you were 12. Is that right? Yeah, I was in about my late teens when she started to get sick. My mom had, um, my mom was a, a LVN nurse. And so she had taken care, she was taking care of others. She has, was taking care of a little boy that, um, almost drowned in a pool and he was in a coma. So she was a, his home nurse for many, many years. And also she took care of one of my aunts, her sister. She, the, her sister came to live with us because she was sick from the family disease. Um, so that was really like the first time I saw it up close, but it was still the family disease. It was still kind of a mystery to me. Um, while my mom was taking care of her sister, my mom started to get some of the symptoms from the disease. And so she was at one point, she was no longer able to be a nurse and she was no longer able to care for her own sister because she was getting the illness as well. And then who, who ended up taking care of your mother's sister and your mom? Is that, did your dad step in or it seems like a lot to take care of two people? <laughs> My mom's sister ended up having to go into a home where she, um, it was at the end stages of the disease. So she, you know, she died within six months to a year of being in a home. And then my father ended up um, having to retire early so he could take care of my mom full time at home. And my father took care of my mom um, up until the day she passed away. While all of this was happening, so your mom really started showing symptoms when you were in your late teens. And then were you at college or were you still living at home as, as she was as she was sick and your dad was starting to take care of her? Um, I was living at home. I was I was working full time. I worked in a, a retail store, but um, I was at home and I I knew that okay, she's sick and she has the same things going on with her as my aunt, her sister did, and apparently it would be the same things that were going on as my, um, my grandfather. Um, again, though, I really just, okay, it's the family disease. I knew that it was genetic at this point. I knew that because my mom had it, I now had a 50% chance of getting it. I knew that there was no name. And I know that I knew that my dad had diligently tried to get doctors to figure it out. We had taken, he had taken him to all the big local hospitals here in California. And they had all pretty much just told him the same thing that, yep, it's a rare disease. It's genetic. Um, go home and Tell your kids not to have any babies. That's pretty much all we could do for you. Thank you very much. When, what year was this? Like, was this the, I'm trying, I'm calculating back. <laughs> um, this was probably in the late 80s, early 90s. My mom okay. passed away in 97. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking about genetic testing technologies were pretty limited then in terms of like identifying something like that. Yeah, it was never brought up to our family. Genetics, DNA testing, none of that was never brought up as an option. And did doctors say at least like they said, like, look, it looks like based on the how it's running in the family it looks like your kids have a 50 percent chance or is that something that you picked up on or how did that how did that part of the conversation go that where you realized like you had a 50 percent chance of also getting this disease um i'm i'm only guessing at some point i was told that it was a genetic thing Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't skip generations and if my mom had it, I would have a chance. I do remember, you know, sitting around talking with my other cousins and we're we're young and you sometimes you don't think before you say stuff and they're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I, my mom is, you know, this age, you know, she's past the age of having symptoms and she doesn't have any symptoms. So if she doesn't have it. I don't have it kind of thing. Yeah. And And I would know, okay, well, my mom's not quite there yet. So I don't know if she has it or not. And once she started to get the symptoms, I knew, okay, I have, I have a chance of getting it. Yeah. That's interesting that it was just so much a part of your normal, kind of like people think that they have other traits that they might share (laughs) with their parents or like patterns that they might follow, that it seems like that family disease for you and for your cousins, that it was just like, there's like a very real sort of normal possibility. Yeah, and it was always talked about, It's and it still is, it's discussed, it's part of our conversation. I mean, depending on what the topic is, it's serious, sometimes we joke, you know, all those types of things, but it's always, um, it was always in the family, always discussed as the family disease. We always discussed the frustration that it didn't have a name. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know have any answers, and there was nothing anybody could do about it except for, you know, all we could do is just sit around and wait and see who was next. That's yeah. basically what we did. Yeah. And do you know how how did your father react to doctors saying tell your children not to have any babies? I'm I'm guessing at some point he must have relayed that to you in some way, unless you were at those appointments with him. He was angry that the doctors would have the nerve of telling him that and I believe he related to us later on he never he didn't come right home and say hey well the doctor said x y and z he he kind of said well yeah the doctors did tell me but who am I to tell you not to not to have children of your own that's not my position to tell you you that's something that you would have to um decide on your on your own yeah and you know, uh, jumping ahead, I have children, I have a child of my own, so I actively chose to have a child knowing that I had the possibility of having this disease. Yeah, because it was before, when you had children, it was before the age when you would have expected to, expected to be showing symptoms, is that right? Yes, and because at the time, I, I, there, I didn't know there was a test. There was, we were never told that there was a test. So. so your brother David and your sister Lisa started showing symptoms when they were how old? Yes, so my brother David and my sister Lisa are older than me. 
and they are actually <laughs> 11 months apart. So they were um, probably in their early 30s when they started to show symptoms. Okay. Um, but at the time, it was something where like, ah, uh, you know, you kind of talk behind their back kind of thing and say, uh, it seems like they might be getting sick, they're having difficulty hearing, or they're not looking very steady on their feet. And so knowing now we've seen it for so long in our family, we knew what the symptoms were and we kind of could tell what the signs were. Mm -hmm. Of course, the person who is experiencing those things is in complete denial the entire time. Right. And so the, the signs are in your family are, were usually um, initially hearing loss and then um, neuropathy. Is that right? Yes. The, they're pretty consistent throughout. So the hearing loss typically comes first. Um, and it's noticed by their missing words or the TV has to be turned up or they're getting a, a, things are twisted because they're hearing it differently. Um, and then, then the neuropathy. So they might have a sore that's starting at the bottom of their foot or, um, or maybe even their gait is a little unsteady. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of like that. And then, then you'll, after a couple of years, you'll start to see the early signs of dementia and it, the, it show the, the symptoms are in the very early stages are much like, um, you, you forget words. Uh -huh. Or a re you have a certain routine that you do every day, and now all of a sudden you're forgetting what your routine is. Right. And it's, or you're making bad choices that are completely out of character for what you would nor that person would normally do. Yeah, it sounds just it sounds a lot like um, like age related dementia, but just in happening in a very young person. Do you think exactly? That's yes, true? it is. Yeah. It, okay. The dementia is very much like that, and in the end, the person is very much like the, it's very much like the they would be if they were you know eighty years old. David and Lisa, you said they were in their early thirties when they started um, showing symptoms. Yes, they were in their early thirties. And then at some point, you actually became the caretaker for Lisa, and your father was the caretaker for David. Is that right? Correct. At what point did that happen? Like, how long were they able to live with these minor symptoms before they really needed a full-time caretaker? Basically, until they couldn't work anymore. So Lisa was living um, pretty much by herself. My sister Lisa was a, um, an adoption uh, social worker, and she lost her job doing that, and she was not able to find another job doing that. She just couldn't manage to go to the interviews and be able to answer the questions, and so they, she was getting turned down. She ended up having to take a job as a janitor at a local church, and she had functioned doing that for many years until um, she was just becoming unstable on her feet. So she, it, when she got laid off from that job, she had to come in and move in with me. And I'd say she was probably 
about 45, 44, around, I think, age-wise, I think she was about 44. It was 2013. Um, and at that point, my brother had already moved in with my father, pretty much for the same reasons. He was just not able to get a get and keep a job, so he wasn't able to take care of him, you know, pay for rent and things like that. Um, and then my, my father and I decided that we were going to try and take them to specialists and see if we can get some answers. Some years have passed, obviously, since my mom had passed away. And so we were trying to see if we can um, take it to some doctors to get answers. My dad ended up taking my brother up to UC San Francisco. And at the time, my sister had Kaiser. So I took my sister to a genetic counselor through Kaiser. And what was that experience like meeting with a, with a genetic counselor? And for at UCFS, I imagine maybe meeting with a geneticist and a genetic counselor. Was that, I mean, obviously you got testing done, but I'm just wondering, um, like, what the experience was like in terms of counseling and like your experience with medical professionals at that point, as opposed to earlier when doctors had no answers at all. I, to be honest, I was skeptical because they've had no answers for a long time. I wasn't really up on DNA and genetics. And it's really, for me personally, that really wasn't something that I had educated myself on. And so when we went, I basically just approached it like I did all the other doctors where bring in a stack of papers, here's our family history, this is what's going on, this is the symptoms, this is what happens, um, what do you think you could do? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and when they said, I mean, they're pretty much their first response was, let's get your sister's you know, DNA sequenced. And we had to explain that to her and what that entailed. And she agreed. And I said, okay, well, that's, it's worth a try. It's obviously it's something that's never happened before. And let's see what they come up with. In parallel, was your dad doing the same thing with David at UCSF? Yes, he was. But it took a little bit of a different approach through UCSF. They have a different type of protocol, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Um, they did different testing on him. They said, oh, it looks like, you know, uh, hereditary neuropathy, you know, an HSAN, because there are several. Uh-huh. Um, and we're like, okay, well, we, we got that part. <laughs> but that still doesn't give us any answers. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then at some point they did take his uh, DNA sample. And we didn't know at the time, but they had taken his DNA sample and then gave it to a doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. They didn't tell us that's what they did with it, but they ended up doing that. Huh. So... We waited for the results. For Lisa, it came. It took about two months for the results to come back for Lisa, and um, it, it. She the the counselor called me on the phone and, you know, said we we have a match. And I'm like, 
I, you know, of course, I instantly start crying, even though I'm not quite sure what it means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so she had to explain that they found a mutation in Lisa's DNA, and they matched it with other known mutations. And it um, has a name. And so I instantly put in the name. I googled the name that she gave me, hereditary sensory autonomic neuropathy type 1E. Um, and a couple hits came up, a couple medical records came up. And so when I started reading it, it was, it, um, confirmed that, that it, that is what this is. Um, and then shortly after that, within weeks, I think the results came back from David and it said the same thing, that it was HSA N1E and that the, um, the gene that is mutated is the DNMT1 gene, which is, an, as you know, an extremely important gene in the human body. Were David and Lisa still vivid enough to understand the results? It seems like Lisa was, like, she did give consent to the testing, but it took a little bit of work to explain to her what, what was being done. Yes, I don't believe they fully understood its implications and what it what it meant the they you know the dementia was was set in pretty pretty much by then and um they they didn't know that they were really not aware of the wonderful thing that they had done for our family because at that point, like once a mutation is identified, it means that it's possible to actually test other family members and find out who is actually at risk for this condition or will develop it at some point and who will not. Is that right? That is correct. Did you realize immediately that, that the, those results would mean you could have testing and find out um, whether or not you were going to develop this condition? Or was that only after meeting with um, genetics again to discuss it? Um, I think in that initial phone call with the genetic counselor, she asked if I wanted to get tested and, um, I didn't hesitate. I, 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 for me, it was, it, it wasn't really a choice. It was, I, of course, why wouldn't I? Um, and then I was tasked with the responsibility of having to tell all of our family, not just our immediate family, all of our family that, you know, this family disease now has a name. And not only does it have a name, it has a test. How did you do that? Like phone calls, Facebook, emails, letters? Like how did, how did you go about that? <laughs> um... For the ones that I could, I did it face-to-face. I just explained that I have information about the disease, and I really need to, it's better if I sit down and explain it to you and uh, show you and give and, and give you the paperwork that if this was something that you want to do, that you, you know, you, you could do it as well. Um, so I just you know, spent a couple months reaching out to all the family members that I could, that I knew would be affected by the disease. Like I said, there were some family members that weren't, that it wasn't a concern for. Um, but I, 
kind of just had to explain it to them. And it's a tough, it's a tough decision to get tested for a disease that you know the outcome for. It is a fatal disease. Um, and so it's really difficult to decide um, at any age if you want to find out pretty much your end of, when your end of life is going to be. A lot of genetic testing scenarios, um, like with hereditary cancer testing, for instance, like one of the reasons for testing is that there's different medical management or treatment that can be offered. And in this case, there's really nothing that, that they have to offer you still, right? Like they can offer a diagnosis, but that's about it. That is correct. So again, you know, why do I want to find out if I'm going to have this fatal disease when nobody can do anything for me was the outcome. Um, for me personally, I, I had, uh, even long before there was a test, I had a plan. I knew how I wanted my life to play out if I had this disease and I was gonna, you know, live accordingly. Um, so getting tested was never, like I said, was never really a, a big decision for me. It was just, of course, that's what I want to do. Now, granted, I was a little bit older and I hadn't shown any symptoms. So there was a good chance that I didn't have the disease anyway. But it was, um, it was one of those things that still if you're... <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's just sitting in the back of your mind, you know, and, and I have to be honest with you, there are times now, it's even though I have a piece of paper that says that I don't have the disease, when I get a tingly feeling in my feet, <laughs> I have to remind myself, no, it's not neuropathy, you know, or if I can't hear the television, I have to remind myself it's not because you have the disease. It's just, hey, you're getting old. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you sent me, when you first reached out to me, you sent me a really beautiful piece of writing um, and specifically mentioned you'd gone for a, like a hearing test or a hearing test was done as part of a routine doctor's appointment. Um, and they, they write, yeah. they note that your hearing was a little worse and that was just, um, and you were a little bit younger then too, right? So it was just like so scary to yeah. start to jump to conclusions, you know, when you already know you're at 50% risk and then you're told that your hearing is a little worse than it used to be. Exactly. So um, early on, be, when I knew that I had the 50% chance and there was no testing, my dad did say one of the best ways to monitor it was through a hearing test because that's the first symptom. So it would be a good idea to get a baseline for your hearing. And so I started doing that when I was in my 30. When I turned 30, okay. I went and I got a full genetic, I mean, a full hearing test done. And then I did it again at 35. Um, and there was, in that five year span, there was some change and I got very emotional when they gave me the results. And of course they don't, they didn't know why I was so emotional, but they explained, well, you know, you're, you're getting old. <laughs> you're you're going to miss one or two words in these hearing tests. And it's really not that big of a deal. But they didn't understand the implications that I thought that it meant. And so I had just was, okay, my next thing would wait until I'm 40 um, and get the hearing test again when I turned 40. But 
by then the genetic test became available. Okay. And what, so you said that you knew how, what your life plan was going to be if, if you actually had the disease. So if you're comfortable sharing, like what was, what was your plan for like those two very different routes, depending on if you had it or did not have it? Well, uh, I had watched my mom go from a very vibrant, loving, beautiful woman who enjoyed being with her children and grandchildren and going and doing things to at the end stages of her life, she was bedridden. She was unable to feed herself. She was unable to swallow. Um, She couldn't communicate. She just, um, she wore diapers. She had a catheter. She was no longer there. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something you carry with you all your life. Yeah. And those images. And I did not want to do that to my children. I did not want them to have to experience that, to see that, to have to take care of me in that state. Mm -hmm. And because my children, you know, would still be young, I, you know, I sat there and I did the math. Okay, if I die at this age, where will my children be? And what will they be doing? I knew that I would be able to see my son graduate from high school, but I would not be around to see my daughter graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. And if I was, I wouldn't even known what was going on. Um, and so I had planned to, you know, to end it. I had my idea of how that was going to play out that way, yeah. knowing full well that it's, you know, now in the state of California, <laughs> it's legal yeah. to do that. <laughs> that. Assisted suicide is legal in California. Yes. And is that, um, did you ever talk about that plan with any of your family members, with your siblings or cousins who were also at risk, or is that just something that you knew for yourself but you hadn't shared with people? Um, I I didn't share the exact details and the fact that I had literally mapped it all out and written it down. I didn't share it with that, but that with them. But I had shared that um, I had a plan, and I wasn't I wasn't going to put my children through that. That's, I mean, I, I, I shared it that way. Um, I, I, I just, I just didn't want that to happen. As it turned out, they ended up having to watch their aunt and uncle go through it. Um, and that's, that's a heavy load in itself. Yeah. That's hard enough without watching your mother go through it. Yeah. So there are, there's, there are four children in your family. Is that right? You, David, Lisa, and Krista? There's actually my older sister, Jamie. There's five of us. Okay. Um, um, but me and my younger sister, Krista, are, are close. And um, she, I believe that's the story that you read, the story of both of us making two different decisions. Yeah. She chose not to get tested. She um, has a very different outlook. And... Um, just wanted to, I'm just going to live every day to the fullest, regardless of how it turns out and whatever happens, happens. Again, she, she had already had children by the time the testing was available. So, you know, not having children was 
you know, was not an option because she had already had children like I had. And, um, she, she just has a different, um, way, way of dealing with things than I do Yeah, <laughs> as, as yeah. sisters do. <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say, I'm sure like, even though this was like a very specific example of that with something really weighty, I'm sure like growing up close in age, um, that you were both very familiar with the fact that you had radically different approaches. To <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and no one decision is right or wrong or good or bad. It's, it's a very uh, personal thing for decision for someone to make. And, you know, you tell some people and they're like, well, why wouldn't you? And then some, why would you? <laughs> right, right. People are equally, equally dismayed by the, uh, by the option that they would not choose. Exactly. Like, totally. Yeah. It's- so Krista is now how old? Oh, good question. Uh, well, approximately. <laughs> like, is she? Is she? Been... She's in. Um, she's in her mid forties now. Okay. Yeah. So, mid forties would that be an age where you would think she's probably not going to develop the disease, or is that really still an open question? It's not right. She, if she had the disease, she would have already had um, symptoms of it. She already by now. She, you know, would already be having difficulties walking so there's a good chance she would probably be in a wheelchair kind of thing and she would have to have hearing aids and all of that but um she she is a lawyer and she does she's quite good at her job so mentally she has the capacity that she should at for her age so it's it's no longer a concern and your oldest sister jamie since she's oldest she was like for a long time now it's been past the yeah. risk correct so she it, out of the five of us it was just my brother and sister okay and i shouldn't say just yeah but, but yeah two, <laughs> two out of five just to back up to one question about your family i'm thinking about when you were diagnosed like how old were your kids then and i'm wondering did they grow up with that similar idea of the family disease and waiting to see if you would get sick like was that do you know how much that was part of their conversation and their experience before you actually got tested again it was always a topic it always was something my I have two children and my oldest child my son he is my biological child and my youngest daughter is adopted Um, so my son always knew that if I had it, he might have a chance. In fact, um, when I got tested, he was one of the first people that I told that that, um, it's negative. I don't have it, so you don't have to worry about getting it. And he didn't believe me for a while and still wanted to get tested. I explained to him that there's there's no need. That's not how it works. So even for him, it was a concern. It was a thought that just sits in the back of your mind and waits. <laughs> it's just our, it's our normal. So you are president and co-founder of the HSAN1E Society. And I noticed, um, and your co-founder is Krista, right? Correct. So, and she does some legal work for the organization or how, tell me more about your organization and how, how you work there together with your very different perspectives on things. So what happened was once we got the test results back, we kind of 
got an aha moment that, hey, there are other people out there that have this disease and they've been suffering in silence and alone just like we have. And so we decided that we wanted to reach out to them, if nothing else, just to form an informal support group. And we figured that the, one of the best ways of doing that is trying to get some stuff on the internet. So we, Krista crudely made a uh, website, nowhere near like the one you see now, but she kind of put it up there. And we then at the same time tried to find some um, researchers to see if there was a researcher at researching the disease. And that's how we came across uh, Dr. Christopher Klein from the Mayo Clinic. And um, who told you he had David's? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's how we found it by looking up. I had downloaded all the papers that are the research papers for HSA and 1E. And I laid them all out and I circled the name that was the most common in all of them as an author. And Klein was it. And then I got his email address and I sent him an email and told him about our family and that we wanted to reach out to other families. And he had made these, he had written these papers <clears throat> that didn't include our family. So we know that there's other families out there. And can he please give them our contact information? And it, that's kind of how it started. And within a couple of months, we had, they kind of trickled in here and there. And we started a private Facebook page where we could um, talk and share things and experiences and things of that nature. And so it's kind of evolved from that. Um, I do a lot of the... Um, advocacy work so I'm out there more uh, I go to the conferences rare disease events and I do some speaking engagements and things of that nature where Krista does a lot of the behind the scenes um, work for the society how many individuals or families have you actually connected with is it just more like a handful or is it actually quite a few? Because I know it is a very rare disease. Yeah, we have, there's about 30 people that we, um, that we communicate with now that either have the disease or have a family member that has the disease. Um, we're, it's, because it's, it's actually considered a ultra rare disease um so the prevalence is very the known prevalence is very small um it is a undiagnosed or misdiagnosed disease that happens very often um so people may have the disease and not know it um but we get people once once or twice a month we get new emails from someone i just got diagnosed i think i have this disease my my family member has this disease. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to learn more about it. What can I do? Things like that. Um, we have a couple international families that we now are, are that are communicating with. Um, so the the more awareness that is raised for it, the more that the name is out there. 
it is certain that we will find more families. So you would typically, you know, you would have to go to a neurologist. That's probably the first place that your primary doctor would send you. And a lot of neurologists don't even know the disease either. <laughs> so if you go there with some of these symptoms, there, you know, if you go there that because you have peripheral neuropathy and maybe you have a sore on the bottom of your feet, there's a good chance that you they're going to tell you you're diabetic before they tell you you <laughs> have um, a rare disease. Um, it's it's and only ninety ninety five percent of the time they'll be right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's really having to be persistent on uh, uh, the family, the caregiver, or the person themselves that's there, and hopefully you get a, a neurologist that's really observant, or they suggest maybe you should go to a genetic counselor, and. I think that that's happening more and more these days because that there's a big push for um, people getting their DNA sequenced. And that is really helpful not only for HSA and 1E, it's helpful for all rare diseases. you wish that um, the medical field approached rare diseases in a different way? Is there a way that you can see, you know, even though you know, most doctors, of course, aren't going to come across these rare diseases in their training. Is there a way that patients and cases could be approached differently um, to either shorten the diagnostic odyssey or just make the experience like less awful for people with rare diseases? I think one of the main things for rare diseases in general that I would like for the medical community to think is... um, the rare disease community has a zebra as their mascot. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know if you're aware of that, but the, the reason is, is because their medical students are taught, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, it's a horse. So just treat it as, it's a, as if it's a horse. I mean, I'm paraphrasing the, the parable there. But yeah. um, we... Don't in the, look for the zebra. <laughs> Yeah, we, exactly, exactly. So we in the rare disease community, we want the medical community to look for the zebra. So if you have somebody coming in and you're, you're scratching your head saying, hmm, it's not quite what I, you know, I, I, I'm used to seeing, maybe think it's a zebra, maybe think it is a rare disease and take that avenue that would get a quicker diagnosis and like I said, now, you know, um, getting your DNA sequenced is one of the quickest ways of doing that because the majority of rare diseases are genetically linked. And what do you think the best way is, like if a neurologist were to see a patient with possible HNA and 1E, um, do you think it's best, like, should they order testing or should they refer to a genetic counselor? But at the same time, like most genetic counselors and geneticists, of course, won't have seen this condition either. Like, what do you see as like the ideal way for the genetic testing to get done? Um, I, in the most simplest terms, if they have a patient that comes in with three symptoms, these three main symptoms at a very young age, if you have a 35-year-old coming in with severe hearing loss, peripheral neuropathy, and some cognitive decline, there's something going on that maybe is not in the norm. 
and they yeah. immediately refer them to a genetic counselor. I think more and more that's what uh, the medical community should should be able should be doing. And it, I mean, it is like hearing loss, uh, neuropathy, neuropathy, and cognitive decline be three symptoms that are atypical and not generally associated with one another, right? So, Correct. I mean, if you have one thing that's a little bit off, you could still consider a referral or think it might be a rare disease, but with three things, that seems pretty pretty striking for a possible connection between all of these things that otherwise don't make sense together. Correct. Like some of the HSANs, like the, one of the more common one, Marie tooth, they have the peripheral neuropathy with occasional hearing loss, which is very rare, or it may be occasionally a little bit of cognitive decline, but not all three of them at the same time at a, at, in their 30s. So the age of onset is pretty consistent with HSA and 1E in your 30s. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be... You could be the first person in your family that has it. You could be the de novo mutation. You don't have to have that family history, but it it would make it a, easier if you said, hey, my mom had these symptoms too, or my dad did, and now I have them. There's something, you know, something genetic going on. That makes it an easier way to di- send you directly to get genetic testing. Right, but for doctors to also realize that even in the absence of the family history, like, of like uncommon symptoms at a young age should be a red flag that there could be a new condition in the family. Correct. Correct. And I, with the cognitive decline, it is difficult because they're not, they're not going to say, Oh yes, you have dementia at 35 years old. That's, you know, Oh, you're, they're more likely going to say, well, maybe you're under a lot of stress or everybody forgets where they put their keys um, things of that nature, they're not going to automatically assume, oh, hey, you got some ultra rare disease. But I, again, whether the community is more educated and aware of this disease and the medical community is more aware that there's a possibility of one of their patients having this disease, the, the diagnose, diagnosis for them could be a, a, a lot smoother and quicker. Yeah. The, with the other families you've connected with, with this disease, did they have similar stories to yours as far as what actually led to a diagnosis? Like people in younger generations getting sick were finally offered testing or did they have really different stories? Um, for the families that have had it for generations like ours, the stories mirror. In fact, in the beginning when I was putting out my stories or um, at one point I believe I had my... Uh, the, my family tree out there, I had somebody contact me and say, hey, that's that's my story you're telling, or that's my family tree. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. No, yeah. that's mine. But then when you get to talking to them, they're like, it's exactly the same. So it's, they mirror each other. So, but for a family that has a de novo mutation, it's going to be very different because they um, haven't seen the evolution of the disease in other family members. Everything is new and um, not quite sure how to handle it. And is this a symptom? Is this not a symptom? And what does this all, what does this all mean? And, and that's where having our uh, support group is incredibly useful 
for families that are like that. So one of the things that patients with HSA and 1E have is uh, trouble swallowing. And so it's you wouldn't know that if you have a de novo mutation, but we have families now that are, you know, hey, I, I haven't had issues with that yet. Uh, when, when can I expect this to happen? Or does this happen all the time? Because I don't have that family history to, to go back on. Um, so having that support group is a vital thing for our families. And um, I think it, if we had access to it, if I had access to it from a young age, uh, it, it would have ch- changed a lot of some of the feelings and emotions that I struggled with over the years. And is that true, too, for, um, not to make you completely speak for Krista, but do you think, is that true for Krista, too, even for people who don't want testing done, like the idea of a diagnosis being available in the family where you know like what is what is actually causing the disease in the family, even though there's no treatment, it's just like really happy, helpful to have that answer. Yes, I, I believe she, she would say the same thing, that it would be, it would, um, would have been helpful because before we were concerned about ourselves, we were concerned about our mother. We were watching our mother and all the, this horribleness was happening to our mother. And we know that our dad was trying to help her and the doctors weren't helping. And it would have been nice to be able to talk to another person that said, you know, I, I have a family member that's experiencing that same thing. Or my mom or my dad is experiencing that same thing. And here's what we did or didn't do. Or, you know, it's okay for you to be angry. It's, it's you know, you run that gamut of emotions and you've got nobody to say, yeah, I know how you feel. This is a this is a horrible thing that's happening to to you and your family. You know, I was in my early teens when my mom started to get sick, so my sister was just a child. She lost her her mom for all intents and purposes at a very young age. Um and that's it's a it's a tough road to go down. The the support and the help, it's 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 just it's not there. So that's with our society, that's one of the main things that we focus on and that we we do is um, having that support group. So for people who are listening, who maybe probably not recognize um, their family history and what you're saying or just are interested in learning more, being involved or learning more about rare disease, where would you say they should look? I know you have... Um, a website. You said this seems like much, much more robust than what you started out with for HSA and 1E. So we will list that in the show notes. Um, I know you have a handle on Twitter. What other resources would you say people should look to? One of the major resources for rare disease is a, a organization called Nord. And they have tons and tons of researches, uh, resources on their um website. And one of the main things that they have is they have listed as many of many, many of the known rare diseases. So they have uh, the name and a really good description. 
And so if you think you have a rare disease or you know you have a rare disease, you can put it in their their data bank and get the description for it, see if there's any treatments for it. It would also list um, other... They have good link yeah. outs, right? Like they have links to other... Resources. Yeah, they, they'll list uh, the organizations. So like when you put in... Our disease, you're going to see HSAN1E Society and you're going to, they'll give you a link to our website. And they do that for close to all 7,000 known rare diseases. They also have um, conferences that they have that are really great for people with rare disease or who want to be an advocate for rare disease, a particular rare disease. They have workshops throughout the year. They have. Um, uh, they also do some advocating on the hill for different um, things, different policies that they want passed. Um, so they're they're incredibly resourceful in that area. Another organization that that is similar to it is called Global Genes. And um, they have a lot of uh, community, t- rare disease community type things ha- things happening in all the different states. Yeah, I w- I'm very familiar with Nord as a as a resource anyway, um, but I hadn't heard of Global Genes, so we will include both in the show notes. One of the things that I'm a part of is called uh, Rare Advocacy Movement or RAM for short, and it is a collaboration of other rare disease advocates, and we uh, work together sharing ideas and supporting each other and um, kind of helping each other go through the ins and outs of maybe the industry, you know, the industry or... um, clinical trials and things that have worked for one person may not work for the other. And we are a a group of advocates that um, all of us are experts in our own field of disease. And we have speaking engagements and things of that nature. So there, that's a, um, yeah, that's called Rare Advocacy Movement, and we have a, a website up as well. I hadn't heard of that one either. What else should I be asking you, or what else would you like listeners to know? Most people don't think of rare diseases as a, as a disease that somebody's living with every day. They might think of it as, you know, the Ebola rare disease, something you get from a foreign country. But, I mean, there's so many different types of rare diseases that one in 10 people can have a rare disease. Individually rare, collectively common. Exactly, exactly. So you, you may not, just because you may not know, the understand what that rare that disease that that person has does not mean that it's, that they're not struggling. <laughs> I, I know for, you know, being the caregiver for Lisa, um, you know, you, you wouldn't, you would you might get frustrated at her cuz she's she's young and why is she acting like an 80 year old when she looks like she's 40 and, and i mean and she's not obviously handicapped she you know she doesn't have something visible 
but um, you you might get frustrated with her a lot quicker, and you know, just have more understanding that somebody might have a disease that that you're so completely unaware of. This was wonderful. Thank you so much, Rochelle. Okay, well, thank you for for having me. <laughs> I enjoyed it. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Great Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.